0: Um, we're going to kind of disrupt some of our normal sensibilities this morning. Uh, when we think about what it is that's really important, when we think about what it is that creates value and meaning in life, we you know, we hear about a couple who were part of us for a long period of time, but I mean, in the larger scheme of their lives, they were only here for a short part of that lifetime. And yet what a profound impact that they had on us. So when we think about the things that are valuable, we think about the things that are important, what it is that we want to arrange our life around, this is a challenge. Just even hearing that this morning about Ruth and Roger is challenging to us, or it should be challenging to us. Because like, for instance, when I talk about the American dream, everybody knows what I'm talking about when I talk about the American dream, right? We all have an idea, at least, that pops into our minds about that. American dream is our national ethos, and an ethos is basically the ideals that inform our beliefs and our practices, those ideals that we hold to that should formulate how it is that we go about life. And as Americans, we have held to the ideals of freedom and opportunity for prosperity and success. It, it promises upward mobility for everyone who's willing to put in the hard work to achieve it. Now, There are arguments to be made about whether or not our nation has really provided the American dream as an equal opportunity for all people. But while that could be, that should be talked about and discussed and thought about in light of who we are as a nation and where we've come from, I don't think anyone would debate that the the merits of a society that was built on that sort of an ethos, the, the merits of providing equal opportunity for everybody to be able to pursue What it is that they're, they're longing for or what their desires are. Now here's what's interesting. If you trace the origins and the development of that phrase, American Dream, anybody know where that started? Like how, that's one of those things that in my mind I assumed was just always part of our history that goes way, way back into the origins of our nation. Did you say the Beatles? (laughs) I was hoping maybe the mask would kind of muffle that, but it just didn't. It's still there. <laughs> What's that? Okay, so here's a, it, it, it. It comes from, it's an obviously, the ideology is rooted in the Declaration of Independence. You know, all people are created equal. But the phrase, the American dream, didn't get used until 1931. And there are people alive today that were then living at that time. When James Truslow Adams coined it in his book The Epic of America, he coined the phrase the American Dream. Fascinatingly enough, I haven't read the book, but when I read the synopsis of the book, it was a lament about America. That uh, he was it was they were we were in the throes of the depression and his basic premise was where did we go wrong? Uh, because you have to put it in the context of the time. But then. The Depression ended, we went into World War II, and after World War II, the concept of the American dream was co-opted by a consumerist mindset that began to rise predominantly, largely because manufacturing and the corporations behind those manufactured goods were, were pulling the strings, and so it changed where equality and freedom those concepts there, those ideals that were represented were more about pursuing prosperity in order to buy things. And, and so a new home and a better car and ultimately a privileged life that's free from all the pressures and issues of poverty became the synonymous with the American dream. The good life. We could just, you know, encapsulate it with that. The good life. That's the American dream. That's what we pursued. But even the definition of the good life has been varied over the year in our, over the years in our society. Political rivalries, cultural biases, class distinctions, racial tensions, all sorts of things swirl around trying to, to pull the good life into their views of how it is that we're going to achieve it. And this, of course, like what I'm describing here, this is just our country's version of something humanity has been grasping for ever since an angel was barring Adam and Eve from ever returning back to the Garden of Eden. Humans want the good life. Every society that history has ever known has longed for paradise lost. There's something echoing in our collective understanding of what it means to be human that's longing for something that's more than what we've experienced And God, it seems, is well aware of that longing. When he sent Jesus, the Messiah, who was to reveal God to us, he came with an ethos intended to lead us into the good life, the blessed life, blessed are you when this or that is occurring. And so in doing that, he actually gave us a divine definition of what the good life really is. What is it to have a good life? And it's a great lead-in that you gave me here today. We didn't confer or anything. I had no idea what he was going to talk about. So thank you, Craig. But we're going to consider this today as we continue studying the Gospel of Luke. If you got a Bible, if you want to head over to Luke chapter 6, please. Last week we began chapter 6. Julie gave us a really uh, profound and challenging teaching on this section, didn't she? I thought it was outstanding. And when we left off in there, Jesus had chosen his 12 disciples. 12 disciples was significant. It was the same number of the tribes of Israel. So clearly something is happening here. A new Israel, so to speak, is emerging on the scene and being presented to the world. And Julie pointed out last week that it wasn't, it wasn't so much the list itself, but, what, but who wasn't? on that list that was telling that none of the religious leaders of that time were included in this list of these twelve who were making up this new, uh, expression of the kingdom of God on earth. Even still, who was on the list was still interesting. I, I you know, it, it's kind of startling. We had Simon, if you ever read through that list, we had Simon the zealot listed who was, who was there listed in the same grouping as Levi, the tax collector, Simon, the zealot walking arm in arm with Levi, the tax collector. These guys were from polar opposites of the political spectrum of that day. I mean, if you know who they are, what they were, the zealots, I mean, they were absolute uh, haters uh, of Rome. They, you know, they, they, they were not interested in, in Anything to do with cooperation w- with them. And they were they were insurrectionists who wanted to destroy Rome. And then on the other side of that, you got Levi, the tax collector, who was a collaborator with Rome, was actually profiting from what was happening with Rome's uh, uh, occupation of that territory. And so here are these two guys who who are listed as fellow disciples, not as rivals at each other's throats. That's amazing. If you, and there would be like AOC and Mitch McConnell forming a singing duet. Everybody'd be like, "What is happening here? What's going on?" But what was going on was that something had arrived that transcended the political fidelities of that time. A new king and kingdom had come, and they gave their highest allegiances to him, allegiances to him. And those are lessons for us. So, but in today's text, Jesus is going to set out to provide an ethos, a set of principles and ideals that he'll plainly state will lead us to the good life, that thing that we long for. So let's begin. We're going to pick up where we left off last week, starting with verse 17. It says, uh, when they, that is Jesus and his new 12 disciples, came down from the mountain, the disciples stood with Jesus on a large level area, surrounded by many of his followers and by the crowds. There were people from all over Judea and Jerusalem and from as far north as the seacoasts of Tyre and Sidon. They had come to hear him and to be healed of their diseases. And those troubled by evil spirits were healed. Everyone tried to touch him because healing power went out from him. And he healed everyone. All right, so this section here that we've just read is really meant to, to set the scene for the sermon that Jesus is about to give. And the sermon is one that is paralleled in Matthew's chapters 5 through 7, the famous Sermon on the Mount. Uh, this one is traditionally called the Sermon on the Plain because of its location. Two accounts uh, here are similar, but they're unique enough that they, they actually stand out from each other in, in, a, in quite a way. In fact, some... Critical scholars have, have pointed out that the differences between these sermons is an indicator of, of a contradiction and that's supposed to diminish the authenticity of the text. But we have to remember Jesus was teaching for three and a half years and it's very likely that he just had a handful of regular sermons that he would teach given the, the audience that was there listening to him. And, and like any speaker, each New telling of a sermon is going to have differences in it. When we had two services here, I'd do two sermonses sermonses, sermonses back to back. I could make up words. I can do whatever I need to do to, to... and and each time it was different the first service was always different from the second service it would change it would and sometimes it would have to do with what was present with what how the holy spirit was leading so i'm sure that that's all this is it's just a variation on the sermon of the mount, on the mount that jesus would regularly give when he was out teaching about the kingdom of god so here in luke instead of going up the mountain to teach jesus comes down to a level area and the fact that that's highlighted i just can't get past it the imagery of that is just too distinct to ignore. Luke seems to intentionally highlight where they are on this level area where he meets the crowds and he instructs them and heals them. And to me, that's a powerful picture that I want to latch onto. That It reminds us that Jesus comes to our level to reveal to us God's compassion for us. In the text, there's three types of people that are identified. Jesus' disciples, that's those 12 that he called out, his followers, which are also, we could say disciples, but they're not part of that 12, but they're people who are following and have embraced this message that Jesus has been presenting. And then the crowds, people who would be around for whatever reason. You know, something's going on, then let's go see it. Jesus didn't just minister to his special 12 disciples only. He was intentional and aware with all of those who were embracing his message and even those who were just there for a myriad of other reasons. He was clearly there paying attention, giving his attention to them and representing help to them uh, to meet their needs. And I just believe it's significant that Jesus came to the people in this account. He didn't send word down the mountain, come up here to my disciples and me, we're learning all kinds of cool stuff. No, everyone had had come down to the plain and he came down and met them there and they were there for two two reasons to be instructed and to be healed teaching and compassionate service those you know that's the good news combination right there jesus's message of god's kindness was then supported by his actions matt was even just talking about this during worship that this is more than just a concept it's not just philosophical love There's something behind this that Jesus even represents here. This sort of compassionate service is the primary ethic of God's kingdom on this earth. And it's certainly our calling as the church to emulate this kind of uh, priority that Jesus had. We have something important to say and we have something important to do. And it's been my conviction since Eastgate started that we need to be a teaching church, a, a, a place where we can get into his word we can hear what it says, we can we can listen to it honestly and see how it impacts and changes our lives. The crowds of people, they wanted to hear Jesus. And honestly, I believe they still do. I believe we're most effective in our witness to this world when we share what Jesus said and what Jesus did. And and, and the reason we teach so diligently here. It is so that all of us are equipped to go out and share what Jesus said and what Jesus did. Because that's our calling in life. That's our, our mission that we have. And, and by this, you know, immediately when I talk about how, you know, we gotta have something important to say, we wanna talk about Jesus, this is not to say that we're sidling up next to people saying, I wanna to talk to you about Jesus. Because <laughs> they certainly don't want you to. Uh, so that's why the second part of this is equally important. Jesus supported his message of God's kindness through his compassionate activity among the people that were there. There's an old saying that's attributed to Francis of Assisi. There's no way of knowing if he really said it, but the phrase is, go and preach the gospel and if necessary, use words. Obviously, we've got to use words if we're going to ever get around to the subject matter of Jesus. But but his point is that how we treat people, the kindness and the compassion that we show people, are our support and healing care for people, that is our greatest testimony to the reality of Jesus' power at work in this world to help and to heal. And this is who we're called to be as the church, as, as the individual Christians who make up the church. We're representative of Jesus' values and his compassion for humanity. That needs to be a priority in the ethos that is developed in our lives. So we need to begin imagining then what people may hear from us. How might they hear Jesus in, in how I interact with my fellow human? Let's imagine how we might be agents of his healing with the people in our lives or even the people that we encounter. How might Jesus be able to demonstrate his compassion for humanity through me in in this interaction, in what I'm doing here, when I'm in line at the grocery store in the 10 items or less and someone with 18 (laughs) items shows up. How might Jesus be revealed in that? That's part of the kingdom ethos that we're called to. Well, as I said, this was all to set the the stage for Jesus' sermon that he's going to deliver. So let's listen to him. Let's listen to what Jesus says. And and learn what we can about the good life from him. So picking back up in verse 20. Then Jesus turned to his disciples and said, God blesses you who are poor, for the kingdom of God is yours. God blesses you who are hungry now, for you will be satisfied. God blesses you who weep now, for in due time you will laugh. What blessings await you when people hate you and exclude you and mock you and curse you as evil because you follow the Son of Man? When that happens, be happy. Yeah, leap for joy, for great reward awaits you in heaven. And remember, their ancestors treated the ancient prophets that same way. And we'll stop here. The text makes a point that Jesus is directing these words to his disciples. And we infer from that that he means, that the text means that it's the 12 disciples that he had chosen out. But we also understand that has to expand to being applicable to us, to, to all people who, who are following Jesus for the purpose of ordering their lives around his words. All people who have embraced the reality of Jesus as the revelation of God and Messiah, as the means of our salvation, who've determined that we're going to follow him. and Following him means that we order our lives around what it is that he taught and what it is that he did. And if that's not you, I mean, I understand that, that may not be everybody here. Some people might be here like, you know, I'm just here because I'm just here. as something to do. On a and I get that. That's fine. But I will warn you that the next few Sundays are going to really suck for you because <laughs> Jesus is going to make some serious demands on our lives in these next few passages out of Luke. And we're going to have to grapple with that. And we'll have to do some introspection and, and determination about who we are in relation to Jesus. But Jesus is describing the ethos which will characterize his followers. And that ethos, he says, results in God's blessing, a blessing on us. But as we see, Jesus' view of blessing is fairly different from almost anyone else's view uh, in this world. Now, let's break this down. The word for blessed in the Greek is makarios, makarios. And, and Makarios basically meant, it was meant to describe the good life. You know, that's what we've been talking about. The good life. What's the best life that we can live? What's the highest human ideal? Now, in the ancient world, the blessed ones, the ones who experienced true blessings, were the gods, They had achieved a state of happiness and contentment because they were beyond all of the cares and the difficulties and the struggles of this broken world. They're elevated up there in the clouds. They don't go through all of this stuff. Now, later on in ancient thinking, Makarios was applied to those who had died because, well, they too were now above all of the cares and struggles of this life and this cruel world goodbye. Uh, And then finally... As it arrived in classical Greek, the word came to refer to the elite, or the upper crust of society, all of the wealthy people in in life. It was describing people whose whose riches and their and power elevated them above the normal cares and worries of the lesser folks, the the plebes, the lower class, uh, who were constantly struggling and worrying and laboring in life to try and survive. So blessed to experienced Makarios, To be in that state, you had to be very rich and very powerful. Now, when the Hebrew scriptures were translated into Greek, makarios was used to describe the blessedness, and it was applied to those who followed God's ways. Those who kept his commandments, it said, were blessed. But a state of blessing was directly tied to good fortune. All through the book of Proverbs and Deuteronomy 28, a blessed person was going to, you know, receiving a blessing from God meant that you received earthly material things, a good family, abundant crops, riches, honor, wisdom, beauty, good health, all of that stuff. So a blessed person had more and better things than the average person. A blessed person had all this stuff, uh, you know, the, the, the best of, of everything. In all of these definitions, for makarios, enjoying makarios, blessing, meant you were experiencing favorable circumstances that lifted you above those who struggle. That was the concept, even in the Hebrew Scriptures. But we notice Jesus uses this word in a totally different way. According to him, it's not the elite who are blessed. It's not the rich and the famous, the high and the mighty. It's not the people living in huge mansions or expensive penthouses who have the good life. No, Jesus pronounces God's blessings on the lowly and the poor and the hungry and the crying and the hated. Throughout the history of this word, makarios, it had always been the rich, the filled up, the laughing, who are considered the blessed ones in this world. Jesus comes along and turns it all upside down. The elite, the blessed ones in God's kingdom are those who are at the bottom of the heap of humanity. Jesus is redefining the way the world works. And what he says here defies conventional wisdom. But it's an ethos that is meant to redirect our focus. And that's an important thing to keep in mind here. When we're looking for the good life, the blessed life, when we want to be able to use the hashtag blessed, we're going to do it differently than Bruno Mars did because Jesus tells us that the good life of God's kingdom doesn't depend on temporal circumstances. I missed one, didn't I? Did I miss one or did I go backwards? Okay, there we go. doesn't depend on temporal circumstances. Now, I quickly have to qualify that the usage of the term poor here. Jesus is not making blanket statements that impoverished people are in good standing with God by virtue of their poverty. He's trying to get us to redefine the word blessed and he's trying to get us to redirect our attention in, in this away from temporal away from tem- temporary uh, good circumstances towards an eternal view of value. Of what's important, of what is valuable, and I believe the reason Jesus uses the terminology of poverty here and all the way through scriptures is because people who don't have much are less likely, less prone to being self-sufficient. Uh, and so, you know, this is speaking in generalities. This isn't—he's not making a, an absolute rule in his statement here. We want to catch the catch his vibe, <laughs> if we could say it that way. Jesus uses two tenses for the for the poor. Jesus says that the good life is available now. The kingdom of God is yours, he says. And that's present tense in there. could be translated, the kingdom of God belongs to you. I like that. You are presently part of God's reign and rule, of creator God, of his reign and healing authority in this world. You are currently, presently, right now, a part of what it is that God is doing. In other words, he's telling his followers, you, have, you may be marginalized uh, by the larger world for whatever reason. You, you know It could be economic or race or culture, but you are front and center of God's plans, of what it is that he's doing. Our circumstances have nothing to do with that, with that definition of who we are. Jesus moves uh, from the poor as a noun to verbs, hungering, weeping, hated, cursed, and there he promises future reversal of these things, a future reversal of these things that are experienced here. So Jesus defines the good life as a knowledge that we're included in God's plan, which is our source of inner contentment, coupled with the promise of a future reversal of present suffering as a, a source of hope. So contentment and hope. I belong to God and he's going to redeem this world one day. And temporal circumstances have no bearing on either of those things that make up my sense of wholeness and well-being in this good life. Get that? That's why it's Makarios, the good life. It has Nothing can touch it. Take away everything that I have. Take away everything that I own. It, 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 it transcends the, the brokenness of this, this world right now. So here's the thing. Since Jesus so radically redefines the word blessed, I just think it's important for us as his disciples to follow his lead on this. And I would suggest that for the most part, we have not, uh, when you look at the church at large, as we look around, you scroll down the, the any given social media feed of the average believer. When we see that word "blessed" employed, it's almost exclusively tethered to good circumstances. We are hashtag blessed for what we have, or what we've achieved, or the good fortune that's come our way, or this or that position in life. So we have effectively reversed "blessed" back to its original meaning, meaning and disregarded Jesus' definition. And what's difficult about this is that within the church community, there's a spiritual dimension that goes along with the idea of being blessed or enjoying God's blessing on our lives. And if the idea of blessing is tied to good circumstances, then those who are going through bad circumstances are suddenly in the shadow of that idea And so the questions begin arising. Well, is God punishing me? Why am I not being blessed like that guy over there? Why isn't God blessing me? What have I done? Listen, I saw this played out so intensely in the aftermath of Hurricane Michael. For, For those of us who lived on the beach, who had, you know, less... Stuff to deal with. I mean, that's just the reality of it. Those of us who were on the beach, we had minimal damages that we had to take care of. And and I saw it. You know, people. Uh, you know, a lot of us out here on the beach were going. I'm just so blessed. I'm so blessed. You know, how did you come through? I'm blessed. I just had a few little things that had to be fixed. I'm so blessed. While right across the bridge, a fellow believer from the very same community suffers total devastation, and begins to wonder. Well, why didn't I have that same blessing? Why didn't I get that kind of blessed? This is why I think it's important for us to return to Jesus' usage of the word blessing, to to relearn blessed so it's not reduced to health and wealth, kind of like the American dream has been, but it's applied to our state of heart and mind no matter what the circumstance may be that we're experiencing. Take away everything else, I still have Jesus. I still belong to God. I am still blessed. So, Rob, are you then saying we can't thank God for the blessings of good things? Like if I get a better job, I'm just supposed to say, well, that was some good luck. Wow, cool. (laughs) No, no, of course, of course we can and we should thank God for good things, good circumstances, things that are helpful and beneficial, but we need to expand our view of blessed so that it can include those times when life is not so pleasant. To remember we are still blessed in this. So, so you're saying that if I get a flat tire on a crowded freeway, I should thank God for it and call it a blessing? No, no, I'm saying unlink the concept of blessed from present circumstances, either good or bad. The flat tire, it's a pain. It's dangerous. It's in no way a good thing. But I'm still blessed in that I belong to God no matter what happens to this car or on this street. My place with God remains unchanged and I'm headed towards a redeemed world. Therefore, I'm blessed blessed regardless of what's taking place. And that is Jesus' point. we get that? And he elaborates it then by describing the alternative sorrow of not being blessed in this eternal sense. Let's quickly read verses 24 to 26. What sorrow awaits you who are rich, for you have only your only happiness now. What sorrow awaits you who are fat and prosperous now. For time of awful hunger awaits you. What sorrow awaits you who laugh now? For your laughing will turn to mourning and sorrow. What sorrow awaits you who are praised by the crowds? For their ancestors also praised the false prophets. Okay. Again, I'm going to qualify this as with the poor. Jesus is speaking in generalities. This is not, you know, he's not trying to say that if a person has means that somehow they're out of sorts with God or that he's unhappy with them. He's talking about in this, in these generalities, those who I, whose identity is tied to the resources that they have, the money that they have, the possessions that they have, their sense of wholeness and identity derived from those kinds of things. He's not making a blanket statement that, that wealth is evil somehow. But, but these sorrows and, or these woes They're unique to Luke's gospel. He's the only one who gives the counterpoint. And and it's done so, I believe, to deftly make Jesus' point, and that is outside of God's kingdom, good circumstances are the only hope for a good life. It's sort of a logic riddle. The reason a focused pursuit of good circumstances is a curse is because good circumstances are always temporary. They just are. It's just the nature of it. Woe to you rich, for you have your only happiness now. And anything can come along and knock that down. And just as in the section on blessing, there's a present and future tense. Even if the good circumstances were able to remain through, uh, in place for a lifetime, there's something that comes after that without God does not include redemption, that Jesus describes as sorrow. If a person finds a sense of wholeness and contentment only in wealth or possessions or good circumstances, they're not finding it in God at that point. And one day, all of these riches and other things are going to be gone. And so will the one who built their identity on that stuff. So instead, Jesus challenges us to find our wholeness and our contentment in our reconciled relationship with Creator God. As we live the good news life now, let's find our sense of blessing by being agents of God's compassion to, to humanity in this broken world. If we know who we belong to and we know where we're going, I call that a pretty good life myself. Right on? Amen. All right, very cool. Why don't you stand up with me, please? Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word, even when it's challenging to us, even when it makes our head hurt because we have to try to figure out how to reuse words. We thank you, Lord, for this, because all of this, your words impact us and rearrange how we view the world around us, rearrange how we understand ourselves and lead us, Lord, it leads us into that wholeness and contentment in life. So I pray for everyone here, Lord, in this world with, I suppose, it's the advancement of technology that just keeps us saturated, marinating in so many different worldviews, so many different voices that call out for our allegiance. Help us, Lord, to come back to Jesus. To build our lives and our understanding of self and worth and value of meaning and purpose. Help us to base it on what Jesus has revealed and nothing else. Cut through the static, Lord God, by your spirit. And rearrange our hearts even this morning. To find confidence in you. To find contentment and wholeness in our relationship with you. So that no matter what happens on this earth or around us, we stand in confidence knowing we belong to you, and that you are in the process of making all things new. Do that work in our hearts and our lives. I pray, Father, in Jesus' name. Amen. 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 It's a challenging morning, but I still hope you're glad you came, (laughs) because this is the stuff that's going to lead us forward in life. That was a pity clap? Okay. (laughs) Thank you. Nothing but support for me. <laughs> That's what he's here for. All right. Well, let's speak this blessing on each other, and then we're going to dismiss like we have been. i the uh, uh, kids with parents back at the uh, kids. Close enough. Close enough. You know who I'm talking about. And then and then I'll meet you guys outside if you'd like to talk at all or be prayed for with anything. Let's speak this together. May Christ be a light to illumine and guide you. Christ be a shield to overshadow you. Christ be under you, Christ be over you, Christ beside you, on your left and on your right, both in this world and the one to come. Go in peace, you children of God, when you're dismissed.